Hey everyone, this is Joe. This is a Feedback Friday. Today we have two callers in alphabetical order. They are Daniel from The Bandit's Keep and Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Both of them have their own excellent podcasts and links are in the show notes. Let's get started. Mail call from the United States of America. Hi, you have reached the Decahedron RPG cast feedback line. Just start talking at the sound of the tone. Hey, Joe, this is Jason. Just listening to your third episode in the Kelnor series. Really enjoyed it. I think it's worthwhile doing these. I really enjoyed it. I'm going to pick up a copy of that. I don't think I had that. I've got some Judges Guild stuff, but not a lot. Um, but, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed listening to it. I would enjoy listening to more things like that, but I'm weird. I really like the idea, and I agree with the idea, of figuring out all the backstory, even if you don't present to the players. I think some GMs feel that if they come up with a backstory, they have to feed it to the players. But I agree with you. It's okay if the players never learn it, because it helps you as the GM. When they throw you a curveball and they do something you're not, you weren't expecting, if you have all that figured out, it's a lot easier to kind of come up with solutions on the fly and figure out how NPCs are going to react on the fly or give an answer from the NPC. If you've got that world fleshed out, then it's a lot easier to draw on that information to, you know, respond to those weird things players do. And it just makes the world feel more realistic when the NPCs are referring to things and maybe they have sayings and, you know, things like that, legends that different NPCs refer to that the players may or may not ever ask about or may or not ever know, but the fact you're doing those things helps them feel real. So I'm with you 100% on that point. Talk to you later. Hey, Jason. Thanks for that call. Um, yeah, just a whole bunch of agreeing with each other. Thanks for telling me that you like that kind of episode. I'll probably do more then, uh, even if you are weird. But, you know, you're the only one that called to say whether or not it was good or not. So... Um, you have 100% of the vote. Vote. As for backstory, yeah, like like you said, like I said, it establishes the mindset. Those things are in your mind as a GM, and as you run the character, you can draw on. Uh, as you're running the adventure, you can draw on those things and um, just hint at them. You know, when the players throw that curveball question, like what color is that thing, you can. You have that stuff to go back on. Well, you know, there used to be a temple to whoever and blah, blah, blah. But you don't have to say all that. That's just in your mind, you know. Oh, that god's color was yellow, so it's going to be yellow. Uh, whatever. I have found players in many ways are like five-year-olds, and they just fixate on the smallest thing, and they go, why? And so you give them an answer, and they go, why? And why? And, you know, it's, but whatever, you know. When a player is fixating on something, that is something that they are interested in. So go with it. You don't bat them away and say, get back to the adventure. Just run with it. Hey, thanks for that call, Jason. Uh, I never just leave one message. So. <laughs> uh, so the thing you said at the very end, which I thought was super interesting, because it ties into something you said before, and then I kind of roughly commented on it, which was the story that you want to tell, I think is the way you said it the first time. And then you said here what you want the players to experience. 
I think that's just a really interesting way to approach it and maybe something that I would consider looking at. You know, you kind of throw the other side like, oh, just willy-nilly do whatever, but that's not how I approach things at all. I approach it as what do the players want to explore? So I, I almost never create any large universe or anything like that without sitting down with the players first and say, what is it that you want your characters to do, generally speaking? What kind of worlds would you like to explore? What kind of things? And then together we kind of find something that works for both of us. I never think I want my players to experience this, so I'm going to create a world. So I guess that's what I meant in my other comment. And I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that because I think the approach of, oh, I know my friends love this, I can kind of do this for them, is a pretty cool approach. I just never think of it that way because I guess I don't want all that responsibility. I'd much rather them do what they want to do. Anyways, great show. I'll talk to you later. Hey, Daniel, thanks for that call. Everyone else, that's actually kind of a teaser because if you're paying attention a couple of weeks ago, I said, Daniel left me a call and I said, that would be a great episode all by itself. And that was the call. And Daniel and I met last week and we recorded the episode. And I expect that one will be going live on September 6th. So if you want to hear the answer to that call, listen in on September 6th. Daniel and I sat down and discussed that whole thing together. Hey, Daniel, thanks for the call, and thanks for joining me on that episode. Hey, Joe. Daniel friends keep calling in. Somehow I missed episode 82, and I'm listening to it now. I don't know. Of all the episodes to miss. Okay, gnome, bandit, Viking, foot raiders, <laughs> in a bandit keep. Yes, that is amazing. Love it. Uh, yeah, I, the, the designations that you were saying are not exactly chainmail, but yeah, that's how I would interpret it, exactly what you said. I actually think I'm driving, so I can't check, but if I'm not mistaken, in the uh, expert book, a basic expert set, when you hire mercenaries, they're designated say what you're talking about there, so I wonder if that came from something else. Maybe OD&D itself. I'd have to look at it again, but yeah, but right, because in, in chainmail, they go light, heavy, armored, not light, medium, heavy. If that makes sense. So heavy would be chain in chain mail, where armor would be plate. But the way you did it, it makes way more sense to me. And maybe, uh, yeah, I, I like how you did it. it. Sounds pretty awesome. So this, you know, when you first talked about this with uh, James, I was like, this is a pretty cool little judges judges deal thing. But I'm really loving it. I, I think I'm gonna pick this up. It's very very cool. And I'm looking forward to 83, which I saw already dropped. Uh, I think it's 83. Maybe it's 84. The one where you give the background, but. So far, I'm enjoying you uh, building it. So, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for that call. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I'm glad you're liking Kelnor. Like I said, it is my favorite D&D adventure of all time, um, even though I don't think James considers it a module. But, yeah, I love it. Um, as for the light, medium, heavy thing, so this definitely predates BX. I think Holmes was just becoming a thing at that time. And I think uh, one of the AD&D books was out when this was written. Um, you know, I thought I got the light, medium, heavy being you know, leather chain plate from the encumbrance table on uh, OD&D page 15 of uh, book one, but I just looked at it and no, uh, in fact, it goes just like you say, it says uh, light, heavy, armored. So um, 
yeah, I, I don't know where I got that rationale, uh, but it makes sense to me. So that's what I'm going with, unless someone can give me something better. Hey, Daniel, again, thanks for that call. Hey, Joe, uh, as far as con games, yeah, I, I kind of get what you're saying. I mean, I've run a lot of con games now, but first couple times I ran them, I was kind of like, ooh. But it's kind of a great experience because it's completely different than anything else that you'll ever do, in my opinion. You're, you basically have a group of strangers. You really have a fixed amount of time. And oftentimes, at least the games I run, I say no experience necessary. So I'm running OD&D for people that, you know, with my house rules, that maybe have never played ODD. And it's really fun to kind of show them the system, let them be able to be creative within the framework of that short period of time and the structure of the game. So it's very worth trying. If you run a game at a con and I go there, I would 100% jump in your game. So uh, that'd be awesome. What's the other thing you said? Oh, and to do the same thing every year, that would be great. I, You know, I've been doing that, although this year I'm not doing anything. Yeah. I've been running a game where a bunch of first-level characters fight a dragon. Uh, it's called Two Slayer Dragon for, like, three years. And I was making it, like, my thing that I do, but I just couldn't fit it in this year. But that's really fun. So I think that would be a great way to do it. Oh, I also ran uh, the Doom that came to Sarnath. So basically I make a new Sarnath every year. Actually, that product, that Judges Guild product, uh, which I somehow I'm liking on, would probably be great for me to use for that because I basically make a ruin that they go out and search. Interesting. Anyways, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Hey, Daniel, thanks for that call too. First of all, congrats on catching that sneaky bonus content I put after the outro music. The second thing, yeah, I guess before I would feel comfortable running a con game, I think I would have to play in a con game or two or three and, you know, just get the vibe of how they feel different from a normal, you know, weekly type session. As I've said before, the only con game I played in was in 1984-1988 at Wunderfest at Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls when I got, it was a D&D game, I got killed by a poisonous spider within the first five minutes of play. So uh, there you go. As for no experience necessary, it's funny that you say that because I always say that like I said, I do most of my playing on Roll20 with strangers. And when I post my game, I always write, no experience necessary, newbies welcome, and in fact encouraged. I love being that introduction to uh, the hobby for somebody. And I feel, <laughs> wow, this is going to sound full of myself. Oh, I hate sounding full of myself. But I feel I, I do it well because um, as, as they say in the Dungeon World book, one of the jobs of the GM is to be a fan of the players. And I take that to heart. Even before I read that, you know, I'm, I, I'm a fan of the players. Say stuff. I'll, I'll support you. That doesn't mean I'm going to fudge any die rolls. The dice are going to land where they land and you are going to live or die accordingly. But I'll be rooting for you all the time. And if you want to argue with me about a plus one, you know, hey, shouldn't I get a plus one bonus? I'm not even going to argue. Sure, especially on a D20 system. Plus one bonus is a 5%. So 95% of the time, it doesn't matter. So why argue about it? Just give it to the player <laughs> and say, yeah, okay, have your plus one. Um, they feel good. Like I said, 95% of the time, it doesn't matter. So 
Yeah, and for the, the same thing every year, yeah, of course, like I was saying, it would be um, a frontier fort, but it would be a different frontier fort every year. And of course, then the urge there is to try to tie them into a meta story, which I would have to try to fight that urge to my best. Hey, Daniel, thanks for the call. Hey, Joe, Jason here. Just listening to your feedback Friday. No worries on having to cut back your, you know, the amount of shows you're putting out because of your jobs. That's totally understandable. Real life comes first. As far as Star Wars, I have not read The Star Wars, a graphic novel. I do have a book called The Secret History of Star Wars that I can't tell you who wrote it because I'm in the car right now. But it goes very, very in-depth into the dra into the changes of the drafts and all kinds of backstories and, you, you know, all behind-the-scenes stuff and all that. So, so I you know, did know a fair amount about the, you know, all the changes and all that. Um, I don't know what else I was going to say because I'm tired because I've worked all night and I'm listening on the way home. But great episode as always. Yeah. So I, oh, Mercenary Spies Private Eyes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. That, that's a neat game and it's one that I need to get back to the table now as an adult. And see, recently, uh, Daniel and myself have been playing Top Secret, and I'm very curious to see how Mercenary Spies Private Eyes compares to that actually now playing as a mature adult. So that'll be an interesting comparison perhaps at some point. But we also might get James Bond 007 to the table. I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, so lots of espionage stuff coming up. Anyway, I will talk to you soon. Take care. Hey, Jason. Thank you very much for that call. Um, yeah, you said real life comes first, and that kind of made me chuckle. Once upon a time, many, many, many years ago, there was an online community called Second Life. I don't know if it still exists or not, but um, and I used to be active for a little bit on Second Life, and that was just something they said all the time, is that real life comes first. Anyway, you said you were tired. I, I hope you got some sleep, dude. And then Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes. You know, while you were talking, that gave me a thought. I wonder how that would work for a far future science fiction RPG. It must have some vehicle rules, right? And they should be easily modifiable for starships. Um, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna give that a look and give that a, a peek. And while I'm talking about looking at rules completely unrelated to your call, but something I said last Feedback Friday, I talked briefly about Space 1889, which I think I called Space 1899 for whatever reason. But anyway, Space 1889, which that would definitely be Victorian at that point. I said that, you know, I really like the setting, but the rules were a little too crunchy. But after I recorded, I went, you know, feeling a little nostalgia, and I found the, the rule book on my shelf, and I went through it. And the system is actually, it's very rules light. And I was like, wow, this kind of rocks too. So I wonder how that would work, uh, taking out the sailing ships. And stuff. Although, I mean, that's that's the charm of that system. Um, yeah, no one said anything about it. So I don't know if I'm the only one that remembers Space 1889 or if it was, uh, everybody remembers it and just nobody likes it. Eh, whatever. <laughs> Thanks for that call, Jason. Hey, Joe, Daniel calling into the call-in show. I do that a lot, I think. <laughs> as far as the traveler examples, I will try to dig some out, but I want to call in because 
I think the difference in the tunnels and trolls, which is that I noticed, is that the triples roll and keep. That happens, I think, in fifth editions when they add that, which is how you can end up with, like, a super inflated, like, 26, 28, uh, you know, strength, let's say, to start, then you become a dwarf, and then all of a sudden you have, like, a 60, almost a 60 score. That That's the difference. I wouldn't – the triple – Keep and re-roll is, is the, the thing from the first that's not in the first edition that is in fifth that inflates the scores more. Uh, the rest I don't know, obviously, because I'm just barely looking at it, but I do know that. Uh, part of me likes it <laughs> uh, because it, it virtually guarantees you're going to start with a pretty good character, but part of me does not. I think I'd probably house rule it. Again, I'm house ruling the game I haven't played uh, to say maybe you get the triple uh, keep and, and re-roll. But if you do that, then you can't play a demi-human race because they're completely overpowered compared to humans if you allow that. So, anyways, that's my thought. But maybe you need to be overpowered in tells and trolls. Again, I have not played it, so I am just looking at the rules, which is not the best way to uh, evaluate a game. you got to really sit down and play it. Thanks for the response, though. Pretty awesome. And I look forward to talking to you, actually, uh, well, I was going to say in person, but online <laughs> for our joint episode, which may or may not come up before you play this call. So who knows? People might be uh, completely confused. But I'm not confused in knowing that you're doing a good job. I'll talk to you soon. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for that call. So that episode you're talking about goes live on September 6th, which is actually going to be the episode after this one. Uh, this episode drops on a Friday. That episode drops next Wednesday. But I talked all about that during the second call on this episode. As for calling in to a call-in show, yeah, by all means, definitely, please do. That goes for everybody. Um, you know, when I first started, I thought that calling shows were not content. I thought they were some, like, totally different beast, and they shouldn't count as a regular episode, which is weird, because one of the things I like best when I listen to other shows is listener feedback. <laughs> So it's weird that I would discount it, or I don't know. And I don't know why. Uh, but I got over that. I saw the light. Now, as for Tunnels and Trolls, of course, as I talked before, I could talk about Tunnels and Trolls all day. And that's why you talked me into doing a separate Tunnels and Trolls episode, which I'm going to do, so I'm going to keep this kind of short. But you are wrong. And I don't mean that in the you have a bad opinion type thing. I mean that you are factually incorrect. The tarot rule, tarot stands for triples add and roll over. That's the rule you're talking about that you don't like, does not appear in 5th edition. It does not show up until the 7th edition. Now, it could be that in the last version of 5th edition, which we call 5.5, we, the fans, um, which is the 5th edition up front, and then at the very end where uh, Rick Loomis had some extra pages because, you know, they kept increasing the folio count that you need for a book. So he added some appendices of some optional rules and stuff, and that's where he adds in a skill system that's based on the skill system of mercenary spies and private eyes, but it's skewed towards fantasy instead of martyring espionage. And it could be that somewhere in those optional additional rules that he throws in the tarot rule, but of course, again, that's an option that's even more ignorable than any other rule that you can always ignore under rule zero, right? So it's not until 7th edition, but even in 7th edition, you said it's hard for you to envision a starting character with a strength of 56. The 7th edition changes the way that levels are determined. So a character with a 56 strength would actually be considered a 5th level character. So maybe it's still 
their starting character, but it's considered a fifth level character. So it's not really a starting character. Um, so the other thing I did was, you know, because you talked about tarot and your concerns about it. So I actually wrote a little Monte Carlo sim that's a computer speak. That's when you write a program that just rolls the dice a whole bunch of times to gather the, the stats, you know, look at how things look like. And in my case, I wrote it to ro roll the stats one billion times. I did this in C-sharp, by the way, and I'm just saying that for our listener Dustin, who is a Python hater. I would normally write something like this in Python, but for a billion, that would take a while in Python, and in C-sharp, it takes a minute or two, if that long. So I wrote this one in C-sharp, so you can, you can laugh now, Dustin. Um, anyway, so I wrote it a billion times, and the chances of you getting those mega high scores really aren't that great. So the chances of getting like from four to 16 are pretty close. They're a little inflated, but you know, as just rolling 3D6 normally, your chances of getting those high numbers is about the same as getting a 17 or an 18 when you just roll 3D6. I don't know if I'm being clear. You know, if you use the tarot rule, you know, the amount of times that you get high numbers is about the same as if you weren't using the tower rule, uh, the chance of getting a 17 or 18. And in fact, the chance of rolling an 18 on normal dice is about the chance of rolling a 28 or better. But I agree, that's high, especially if you say, yeah, I'm going to be a dwarf. I'm saying, dude, just let, let, let go of the hate for the big numbers. You say that one of the reasons you like using chainmail with OD&D is because it makes those fighters seem actually heroic. And that's what those big numbers do in TNT. They just amp up the, the heroic feel of everything. The only last thing I'll say, because I, like I said, I'm going to save the rest for um, the TNT episode, is that Tunnels and Trolls is no longer owned by Ken St. Andre. And yeah, after... Rick Loomis died, Flying Buffalo's assets get sold off to another company, and with that, wet the rights to Tunnels and Trolls. Ken St. Andre, so yeah, way back when, back in the day, around the fourth edition time, I think, actually, um, Steve Jackson, yes, that Steve Jackson of GURPS fame, did an edited version of Tunnels and Trolls called Monsters Monsters. He did it for metagaming which is pretty much just Tunnels and Trolls, but they flip the script and they say, you're, you're playing the monsters. Rules-wise, it's pretty much the same. It gives a bigger listing of uh, monster multipliers and everything. So some people are of the opinion that we should focus our thoughts on Monsters, Monsters these days and not Tunnels and Trolls because that way, Ken St. Andre, the original creator, has... A financial interest in that so of course he's one of those that feels that way um i i can see both sides of this argument i would say that if every time a property is sold off all the fans abandon that and go to the creator's newest thing or whatever that destroys the resale value of those properties and that is a different revenue stream that could be lost. So 
Yeah, I can, I can see both sides. I don't think there's a morally right or wrong answer here at all. Uh, but, you know, other people more intelligent than me disagree. So um, follow your conscience. Thanks for that call, Daniel. Hey, Jason here. Just listening to the latest feedback episode, I think 77. And, yeah, I do like the proto-life path system that Traveler has. I, I'd have to research. I do think that might be the earliest example of that. And, of course, it's been developed and made more complicated now by their games, which might be good or might not be good. Traveler leaves you a lot of leeway to figure out, to discern what those events are that happened and, and to make your own story where some of the newer life path systems really give you specifics that you have to kind of put in there. But, you know, Games Workshop, of course, Games Design Workshop, I should say, Game Designers Workshop, <laughs> Uh, use this famously with Twilight 2000, Dark Conspiracy, other games, I'm sure. And then we have other companies like Artalzorian Games with Cyberpunk 2020 that have used it. So I, I do like the Life Path creation system. I, I think it's neat. I think it really helps in filling out the background of the character. And I kind of like the lighter version, the Evan Traveler, where you get, you know, a skill or an injury or an item. And you, you just got to come up with a story to, to string all that together. So anyhow, great episode. I have updated in the play forums. I posted a link to that interview with Dave McGarry by his daughter. So you can go listen to that. And that's all I have for this call. Hey, Jason. Thanks for that. Uh, I did grab that interview. I haven't listened to it. I have a drive up to Niagara Falls coming later this week. And so I'm massing stuff up to listen to during the drive there and back. Um, Life Path character creation. Yeah, I am a huge fan. In addition to the ones you mentioned, uh, and now it's going out of my head because I try to talk about it. Um, there was, there were like two companies working together. Action RPG, I think, was one of them. They had one in there, but it changed wildly um, throughout the versions of it. I will agree that I like lighter ones versus heavier ones. Uh, I have seen one, the ones you're talking about, where like acquire a life mate. Uh, okay. Yeah, I prefer lighter ones. Leave more to the player. I think that, now I'm going off script. I think that is actually, I, I'm going to use the word fault here. <laughs> Because that's how I feel. I think this is a fault of modern products in general. Like Goodman Games, if I'm, I might be getting the company wrong, and I apologize if I am, but Goodman Games did a reprint of, oh, what was the adventure? <laughs> wow. You know, and as I'm thinking about it, it might not have been Goodman Games, it might have been uh, Kenzer & Co., um, I want to say, though, it was Goodman Games reprint of one of the classic modules. Was that Hamlet, maybe? And there's a hermit that's out in the wilderness. And everyone told them that they needed to keep the hermit in there because it was their favorite encounter when they were playing it. And then when they were looking through the, the original book to see what to do with it, they noticed that there was nothing there. It was just a set of stats. So they felt that they had to add in all this extra detail 
And I'm like, no, no, you're, you're getting it exactly backwards. That is why it was so memorable for everybody is because that GM knew his group of friends, knew his players, and he was able to make that encounter memorable because there was nothing in the text to, to hold them down, to bind them, and, to, and they, they just... And I'm picking on them because that's the example that came to mind, first of all. But there's another one that someone else did a reprint of some classic adventure. And again, they said, oh, and we added more detail to everything. No, that's not the... <sighs> Give me a skeleton. I'll do the details. I'm I'm a GM. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I, I, I just noticed I'm on a soapbox right now. Let me Let me get off of this thing. Uh, but yeah, I, I like the letter approach. And in fact, the book one and supplement four, you know, they have that really light streamlined version. Once you get to like uh, Traveler books four, five, six, seven, you know, mercenary, high guard, scouts, and merchant prince, where they go instead of every four year blocks, they go yearly blocks. And there's more roles in each one. And A, it takes longer. B, you're adding more detail from the dice and C, unrelated to anything else we've been talking about now, but C, you're getting more skills. And so now we're playing a game of power inflation where we're just making all the characters more powerful, which is a whole nother topic on its own. And then just as a little chuckle, because you were getting tongue tied over games workshop versus game designer workshop versus game designers workshop, but but yes, Traveler was published by Game Designers Workshop, GDW. However, my copy of Hard High Guard, my paper copy you know, from the 80s, actually says Games Workshop on it because I bought that one in a little game shop in Oxford in England when I was living there during the 80s. So Games Workshop isn't entirely incorrect because they were the licensee for the UK for a while. Anyway, uh, thanks for that call. Hey, Joe. Uh, Dan from Man's Keep. <laughs> I'm not through with the call-in episode, the fact that you, you haven't actually just started to, to go to my first call-in. But I wanted to call in so I don't forget that two things. Number one, your uh, teaser of the uh, OD&D, but your rules that use a traveler-type character build. Oh, my God, I'm very excited for that. So that's super exciting for me. I love it. I love when people hack OD&D and other games, so I'm very excited to hear that. And also, it sounds like, um, you know, just the way that I haven't listened to the actual play one. Uh, I don't know. I skipped it, and then I, I didn't get back to it yet. So I don't know. Do you add? I'm curious. Do you change the skill things that people roll on? Is that what you did? I can just listen to it. You don't need to answer that. But it sounds like that's what Michael Chicago was by that as well. It feels like, I don't know if you guys can coordinate it, not making it work. But it'd be really cool to hear you talk about this in Battlestar Galactica because I, I watched it when I was very young when Battlestar Galactica came out. I loved it when I was a kid. And I haven't rewatched the AD show much, but I did like the new one. But I agree with you 100%. It ended terribly. Oh, my God. So, yes, fair. On board with that. I would love, I, I could listen to you guys talk about Battlestar Galactica uh, if you're willing to do a show together or something like that, or maybe just more calls. I don't know. Michael, if you hear this too. Very, very interesting, very awesome, and I'm super looking forward to that OD&D, um, <laughs> that OD&D Traveler-type uh, character thing, because I think you're right. I think the idea of building a character's backstory with the mechanics, you guys are both talking about this, is just really, really interesting, and I think 
great for people who maybe get stuck on ideas, right? Some people can very easily uh, look at three, six down the line and say, oh, that's my character. They're strong, they're smart, whatever, and create something. But uh, for the rest of us, sometimes it's nice to have a little push. So awesome stuff. I look forward to Hey, Daniel. I wonder what you look forward to. <laughs> um, okay, two things that you mentioned there. OD&D, Life Path Character Creation. It's on my list of episodes to do. What I'm thinking, I would like to do it kind of the same way I did the Traveler one with James and actually go through it with somebody. So I would need that other person to roll up the character. So maybe James, but if somebody else is interested, let me know. James, let me know whether or not you're interested. Battlestar Galactica. So... You made the same mistake I made, and I realized it after I said it and when I was doing my edit. I said the 1980s Galactica, and Galactica was 1970s. And the way to remember this is that after Battlestar Galactica was canceled, they came out with a new show called Galactica 1980, and that was absolutely, positively horrible. Um, yeah. It's like they got their ratings numbers and they noticed that their biggest rating category was in kids. So they turned it into a kid show with superpower kids. It's, oh, it's just flying motorcycles. Um, has the guy from Adam 12 on it. Uh, on the other hand, the absolute best episode ever of Battlestar Galactica is on that series. It's called The Lone Warrior, and it's kind of enemy mine with Starbuck and a Cylon, and it is a great episode. As for doing a BSG episode with Chicago Wiz, I would love to do that. Chicago Wiz, are you listening? You want to join me for an episode about Battlestar Galactica? Let me know. Thanks for the call, Daniel. Hey, Jason here. Just listened to your latest episode on designing your, you know, your space campaign. Although to some degree, it's not really a space campaign. Well, it is a space campaign, but coming up with the restrictions and then doing the probability field and all that. I think they're both really interesting ideas. Reminds me a little bit of Fringeworthy from TriTac Games, some of the ideas, but I think both would work. Of course, you know, a big part of it is you've got, you know, it's exploration heavy, which is great. And you, I would assume that pretty much most of this, the players are not going to know. So they'll have to slowly uncover it as they go, the hidden history, right? Which is really interesting. No, I, I think they're both good ideas. I am not going to help you by telling you which to pick. I, I think they're both worthy of exploring. So I think you have to go with the one that you're more interested in running. But great episode, and I look forward to the next one. Hey, Jason. Uh, yeah, I think about these things even when I'm off the mic. And what I've de definitely decided to do is the Lost and Fallen Empire. I really love the idea of uh, ghost planets, you know, like ghost towns only on a planetary scale, where, you know, after the collapse of the Galactic Empire or whatever it was, um, you know, without them getting their supplies in, the, because the type of planet was, they just weren't able to maintain a population and everybody died. Um, yeah, I really like that. That's probably what I'm going to go with for that. Um, thanks for the call. I guess the other thing I would say is, you know, regarding how I would approach it, 
if I was going to run a game these days, I would probably use FTL 2448 or Incursion, the TriTac space games. And those both have alien races as part of them. And I'm okay with that. I, and really, Fringeworthy does too. But I would limit the players to playing humans. So while there are other intelligent beings out there, you're not going to be playing them as a PC. You, you know, just like in D&D, although obviously you could have a dragon in your party or have a centaur in the party, that's not normally how people play D&D. And it would be the same way in my space game, where while there are aliens out there, you're not actually playing them. So there's not that worry about playing that pointy ear human and the role play challenges that come in with that. Hey, Jason. Uh, thanks for that call. It, it's been my dream just to write a setting book that is completely devoid of any role-playing system. If you want to play it with GURPS, play it with GURPS. If you want to play it with science fiction hero, what do they call that, star hero? Uh, play it with that. If you want to play it with Lucky 7, hey, <laughs> play it with that. Uh, what was the other? Oh, aliens. So I love the concept of humans only. I love the concept that even in the far future where mankind has reached out across dozens of star systems and has homes on dozens of planets, that there's still talk of UFOs and alien visitors that no one has proof of exist yet. I love the idea that one of the adventures that the characters can have is that they are the ones that finally make first contact with an alien species ever. Just just things I want in the game, you know? And yeah, so that is why I would go humans only for this setting. Thanks for the call. Hey, everyone. I am wrapping up here. We are all caught up except for two messages left in the backlog. Uh, they're both from Daniel. Uh, one is about swords and spells, which I look forward to playing, and the other is about narrative versus tactical, which I look forward to answering. But this recording is going very long, especially for a feedback episode, although I have lots of long pauses in there, so that's why I'm thinking that um, once I get it through edit, it will come out at normal length. But thank you very much for listening. Thanks again to Daniel and Jason for those calls. I look forward to hearing more calls from all of you listeners. So right now, pick up your phone, dial the feedback line. You, you got your phone? You're dialing 562-774-2278. Yeah, 562 is out there in California. And Daniel was assuming I was in California because of that. But really, I got that number just because it's a Google Voice line. When I put it in... That spells RPG cast, the rest of it, not the 562 part. So I was like, oh, that will be easy to remember. So it's 562 RPG cast. You can do that. You can record something or you could just type a message to feedback at decahedron.com or you can go to sayhi.chat slash decahedron or I don't know. Oh, you can go to the the deck, uh, the the play message boards at uh, www.decahedron.com slash boards. Whatever you do, just go to www.decahedron.com. There's a section in there that says, that says feedback. It tells you all the ways you can do it. Um, send me feedback. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. 
a funny gaming story. Whatever. I'm easy. <laughs> uh, thanks again for listening. And tune in Wednesday when you'll hear Daniel join me. And we talk about whose story is it anyway. Um, yeah. Thanks again. Until next week. Happy gaming. Happy life. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Decahedron RPG cast. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a voice message by calling 562-774-2278. That's 562-RPG-CAST. Or by visiting sayhi.chat slash decahedron. You can also email us at feedback at decahedron.com. Links are in the show notes. For more information, visit decahedron.com. Remember that Decahedron is spelled with a K. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Logos by Design Cat. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep those dice rolling.